Accept the reality of the world with which we're presented. It's as simple as that. Billions of people just living out their lives, oblivious. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I guess nothing was what it seemed to be, huh? I want to live a real life. I don't want to dream. Welcome to Beyond the Paradigm, I'm your host Paul. On this podcast I discuss many different topics such as UFOs, giants, artificial intelligence, I've done an episode on COVID-19, on Jeffrey Epstein and much more and I take an alternative viewpoint from the mainstream narrative and the point of this podcast is to hopefully steer people away from the darkness so the mainstream likes to keep us in darkness and hopefully point people into the light. And as a Christian, I believe the Bible, and I believe Jesus Christ to be the only way of salvation. And as a Christian, I am seeking to address a wide variety of topics, including obscure topics like what we'll be discussing on today's episode. Everyone has heard stories of vampires, werewolves, and other monsters. But are these fictional stories or are they actually based on something factual is there an origin to these beasts these vampires these werewolves zombies etc well today i'm joined by dr judd burton and dr judd has a bachelor of arts in history from harden simmons university he also has a master of arts in anthropology from texas tech university He also has a PhD in history, again from Texas Tech University, and he focused his studies on early Christianity and Greco-Roman religions. He studies topics also such as the survival of mythology, sacred geography, folk religion, and contemporary alternative religious movements. On his website, Burton Beyond, it is devoted to conducting sound research in the fields of archaeology, biblical studies, ethnology, folklore, history, mythology, paranormal studies, philosophy and religion, which could be collectively called or described as paranthenology. So without further ado, I'm going to bring Judd onto the show. Hello, Dr. Judd Burton and welcome to the show. Well, hello, Paul. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, thanks for giving up this time to speak with me. Um, like I said, when I was speaking to you off air, I've I've heard some interviews you've done previously, and I wanted to bring you on because the topics, obviously, we're going to talk about tonight is is not something I've covered, and it's not something I've ever heard talked about from the pulpit at all. Um, but just so my listeners um, can sort of get to know you a little bit, because some may have heard some of the things you've done uh, and, and know about your work and everything. But for those that don't, could you sort of explain your background and uh, what sort of what you're doing at the moment? Certainly. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm primarily a, a, an ancient historian, classical historian by training. Um, although I do have um, I, I do have training in anthropology and archaeology as well. So I've 
I've got a master's degree in anthropology from Texas Tech University and my PhD <clears throat> focuses on the history of religions. It's from the same institution. Um, and a lot of people know me from my work on on these kinds of topics, the giants and um, uh, creatures like like the vampire and the werewolf in particular. Um, but uh, another facet of my work has had to do had to deal with the um, the side of Peneus, uh, which is called Caesarea Philippi in the New Testament, which is a site that's at the foot of Mount Hermon, and no doubt your audience will be familiar with. Uh, the association between Mount Hermon and the, the giants. Uh, I wrote a, my PhD dissertation was on the religious history of Peneus. Uh, and I've helped excavate a phase of that site. So I'm, I'm very familiar with its history and sacred geography and its, its pertinent traditions. Um, but I, I uh, currently in the, uh, director and senior fellow of the Institute of Biblical Anthropology. And um, the purposes for that institute are twofold. One, of course, is research into these topics that sort of balance out both the orthodox approach and the, the, the more, I suppose you might say, peripheral or fringy uh, unorthodox approaches to biblical material. Uh, and, and the second uh, purpose is to teach. I, I have six programs of, of of courses related to these these topics that um, offer certification. Okay, yeah, I mean, I've had a look on your website and looked at some of your courses, and and they look really interesting. But you just mentioned there about Caesar Caesarea Philippi. Am I right in thinking when our Lord talks about um, the gates of hell shall not prevail against His church? Mm -hmm. I believe that's related to the location where he was at the time and was it sort of near Caesarea Philippi where the area is it at the base of the mount was known as the gates of hell is that right 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 in in Phoenician tradition it was known as as an entrance into the netherworld uh, into the underworld so the the gates of hell um appellation is a, a, a an appropriate one not only in terms of what Jesus is saying there in Matthew chapter 16 uh, but also <clears throat> it's it's culturally and historically relevant because that was the notoriety of, of that particular area. In fact, when, when the Greeks came in under the Ptolemies <clears throat> and then the Seleucids, they recognized uh, that, that this was not only auspicious because they associated the area, which is kind of wooded, um, with Pan, but they tied it to these older traditions of, of it being an opening into the underworld, uh, which was something that the Greeks themselves were also very familiar with. So um, that may be a longer answer than you wanted, but uh, to answer the question, yes, in fact, uh, it, it was known as an entrance into the underworld. No, no, it's, uh, I like, I like, the answers where you've explained, because I, I, you know, some of my hearers might not have known that. And I have spoke to people at church who, when I explained it to them regarding this, the where Jesus says, you know, about the gates of hell, a lot, most mm -hmm. people weren't aware of that. And just, just before I get to sort of the meat of some of the questions I want to ask you, you mentioned pan. Mm -hmm. Could you, could you elaborate? I've, I've heard a little bit on pan and I've also heard how, 
it's related to Peter Pan. I don't know how they go together. I did hear it on a podcast, but who is Pan? Uh, well, to sort of answer the second part of your question first, um, the, the the connection with Peter Pan, I think, comes from the, the pan pipes that he plays, which, according to the, the Greek myth, uh, he acquired from um, Syrinx, uh, who was turned into a, a, a bundle of reeds at one point. But Pan, uh, as to the first part of your question, Pan is the, the Greek god of... Um, shepherds and goatherds and uh the wilderness and wooded things and, and grottos <clears throat> he's a, a a lusty fellow that would probably be the uh probably be the the uh the, the best way perhaps the, the most euphemistic way to describe him he's largely known for the um his association with shepherds and, and goat herds and um, out of the way uh, sort of, of woodland scapes <clears throat> but what's interesting to me about Pan is that all, although he's generally associated with the region of ancient Greece known as Arcadia what's interesting to me about Pan is that there's a good case to be made that like so many of the other gods that the, the Greeks worship they, they admit to inheriting many of those from the ancient Near East. Um, and I think Pan is probably a, a, another good case for uh, a, a, an import to the Greek world. Um, probably, probably by way of what scholars call orientalizing. And orientalizing is a, a, a description of uh, the influence that the ancient Near East had on Greek world, largely through trade, but of course via trade uh, between the Aegean world and the, the eastern Mediterranean, the, the Levantine coast, via trade you're going to get all, all other kinds of things other than the commodities that are being traded, and that includes bits of culture, so art and religion and, and mythology and all of those kinds of things are going to filter along those lines. Um, and there are two main periods, although there's there are other uh, other less, I, I suppose you'd say, less active periods of orientalizing, but there's one in the Mycenaean period during the Bronze Age, and then there's one uh, big one uh, during the Archaic period uh, from about 800 to about 400 uh, BC in, in Greece. And so um, because so many of these sorts of, of goat demons and goat creatures proliferated the the mythological landscape of the ancient Near East. Um, there's a good case that Pan is one of those. In fact, that uh, the ancient Hebrews had the the Shedrim, the, the hairy ones, uh, or more accurately, goat demons, as mentioned in passages such as uh, Isaiah chapter 34. Um, and of course, there were a host of, of goat goat deities. Um, that the Mesopotamians and the Amorites worshipped. Uh, Bennu was one. Uh, uh, the uh, one of the chief gods, Maru of the Amorites, from whom they probably take their name, uh, was a goat deity or a shepherd deity. Um, Adzaga is is another one worshipped by the Amorites, the Amorite Babylonians. So, 
there's a good case to be made that that Pan's original haunts may may have actually been uh, in in the ancient Levant, and he was at least the worship of Pan was exported to these other places like the Greek world. Um, I, one of the things that I argue, and and not just my dissertation, but also the the books that I've written, like Interview with the Giant and Peneus, uh, that deal specifically with that region. Uh, the Mount Hermon region, you know, ancient Bashan, as it were. Um, one of the things that's interesting in the the sort of uh, mythological ensconcement of Pan at the worship center the, or the Timenos at at Panaeus is that there are these these arguably older traditions about um, Azazel who was also associated with goat imagery. Azazel, of course, is one of the 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 rebellious sons of God, the, the, the watchers uh, that was part of the Genesis six episode. Uh, so there seems to be this longstanding uh, almost procession of goat deities in the region. And Pan is just the face of that entity by the time that Jesus is uh, going to Caesarea Philippi and, and making these statements you know, about the, the, Upon this rock, I will build my my assembly, my church, uh, and the the gates of hell will not withstand against it. Um, all that amidst the imagery of the grotto of Pan, there, the uh, the other gods that were worshipped in conjunction with Pan. The interesting thing about that is that when our Lord says, "I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it," I believe that that's not um, a defensive sort of move it's it's actually um an attacking move that the church will actually attack the gates of hell and the gates of hell shall not prevail is that what you understand it to mean also well yeah i mean that that's probably a more accurate translation um the uh most most superficial readings of that passage would have you thinking that that it is a defensive, you know, but we've learned so much more about the nuances of, of the biblical languages, Hebrew and Greek, now that that the better the better translation in that passage is that the church is the on, on the offensive. The church is the one that's leading the onslaught against the gates of hell. So this is about two weeks at the time of recording after Halloween, and obviously around that time of year. Traditionally, people go out, children go out dressed up in, you know, various costumes, just like werewolves, vampires, ghouls, skeletons, zombies, etc. And obviously, there's a lot of sort of films out there like Bram Stoker's Dracula, Interview with a Vampire, Blade. And obviously, these are all films regarding vampires. But are these just completely made up? Or, in your opinion, do they have some basis in, like, history? Is, is there, you know, a factual basis to these sort of entities? And, and we'll look at vampires to start with. So do they have any factual basis, historically speaking? Uh, well, Sir, Sir Christopher Lee's Dracula will always be the definitive Dracula in my book. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, it, it's looking at it anthropologically, I think that it's difficult to dismiss on the basis that um, even, even if these accounts that we've had for millennia now about them, even if, if, even if half of them are, are, um, even if, ha even if half of them are, um, uh, you know, uh, just rhapsody or fantasy or, or what have you, um, then the rest, rest of these experiences, um, represent a, a, a an interface an experience if you will and that's culturally valuable to an anthropologist you know again i'm, I'm not arguing on theological grounds at this yet but for an anthropologist because so much of that is it becomes ensconced in folklore and mythology it represents part of the intellectual activity uh, within a given tradition. Um, and so, as my, my good friend, the late Dr. Mike Heiser was saying, you know, it only takes one of these instances being real, so to speak, happening in real space and time to completely bust the paradigm. Um, now, when you begin to look at it through the lens of the Bible as a believer, um, we, you know, we acknowledge a supernatural reality. Um, and where it gets really interesting is where you see the characteristics of some of these entities like vampires and where, uh, well, the inter interesting thing about, you know, looking at, at creatures like the vampire of the werewolf is that they also have a biblical basis, um, as do a number of other so-called preternatural creatures, um, I think that's where it gets where it's where it gets really interesting um, for the believer is because they're they're these creatures are referenced in biblical text. Um, they're not they're they're really kind of hiding in plain sight. And unless you're unless you're either a schooled in the languages of the Bible or you've got really good you know language you know programs and assistance of which there are many. Uh, that people can avail themselves. Um, it's kind of hard to, to tease them out of the text, particularly the older the translations are. Um, well, I, I shouldn't just say the older. There are some there are some fairly modern translations that are bad too. Um, but it's it really when I began to write the book Interview with the Giant that I began to look at potential origins for creatures like the vampire and the werewolf and it, it became clear at least in my research to me that that the origins of, of these creatures that have have basically proliferated throughout uh, all of the world's mythologies and, and folklores because you, you do find some variation uh of let, let's take for instance the vampire you do find a variation on that in, insofar as that it's almost a perennial feature in world mythology and folklore there's always some variation on a theme and the taking of life force uh 
more often in the form of blood than not seems to be at the heart of of its its you know characteristics and traits um but as i was doing some of the work for interview with the giant um of course so much of that was prompting me to interface with the the apocryphal material like the book of enoch and uh, the Book of Jubilees, Jasher, the Genesis Apocryphon, um, you know, all of the, the the apocryphal material, pseudepigraphal material that references uh, the giants and the pre-flood world. Um, and as I was doing the research for that book, um, I thought back to um, a paper that I had written as an undergraduate uh, on medieval vampires, and one of the one of the books that I consulted was a work called "The Vampire, His Kith and Kin" um, by uh, Montague Summers. Um, Summers was a rather ex eccentric clergyman, but he was a consummate scholar. He was the first person that I had ever read to link the pre-flood world, the world of of the giants with the manifestation of the vampire on the world scene which i thought was really interesting and it, it's only it's only a, about a paragraph of material that he covers in the the preparatory chapter of his book um which i would highly recommend by the way uh, if folks want to learn more about this i still think that summer's work is 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 seminal in regard to uh, the topic of vampirism. Uh, but he makes this connection between the pre-flood world, that is the judgment that's pronounced on uh, the Nephilim uh, by Enoch in the book of Enoch uh, to the, the vampire. And when you're reading the judgment that Enoch hands down from God uh, upon the Nephilim, of course, they're to be destroyed in the flood, but their spirits are to survive with basically all of their desires and drives and characteristics intact. Um, the judgment goes so far as to say that they would be unclean spirits on the earth, uh, essentially that they would hunger and thirst and never be sated. They would always be seeking to indwell flesh because their bodies would be destroyed in the flood. And, of course, there's a, a good argument to be made uh, that these are the demons uh, in, in later millennia and centuries, certainly the ones that are referenced in, in the New Testament uh, and arguably the ones that are, are referenced in the Old Testament as well. Um, but the, uh, to my mind, th this solved much of the origin question for the vampire and linked it to the biblical material that because the the vampire was at its heart a demonic manifestation it made sense that the way that the vampire behaved whatever manifestation we find in world culture uh it made sense to me because all of those those traits went back to uh the demonic and uh, specifically the, the pre-flood judgment that's handed down to the watcher or not not the watchers but their progeny the nephilim and so 
it seems logical to me that the the vampire along with things like the werewolf and ghouls and zombies and chimera of all kind uh have at their heart uh, a pre-flood origin You mentioned obviously the the scriptures there, and I was reading Isaiah thirty four and and verse fourteen, and I read the King James version, and obviously that reads: "The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the wild beasts of the island, and the satyr shall cry to his fellow, the screech owl also shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest." Now, the word the 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 phrase screech owl, as I understand it, is actually Lilith. Is that correct? That is correct. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's written out explicitly. It's Lilith. Um, yeah. And at least in that translation, you've got you've got some connection with what the Shedim were. That's the Hebrew word for satyrs. Um, so that that's a little better of a nuanced translation there, but you lose it because they're they're translating the Lilith part or Lilith into um, a, a scree some screech owl is usually what it is. Some translations will go so far as to say a night demon, um, but yeah, I I prefer to take the tack that let's just look at the Hebrew audience that this this was written to. They would have immediately recognized the Lilith as the the. Uh, Lilu or Lil Lilith that we find in uh, Mesopotamian mythology, uh, and she was the, you know, here here within the text, and of course there are some references to Lilith in Psalms as well, um, but the, you know, right there in the biblical text, the canon biblical text, we have reference to a vampire, um, and this this was something that would have been readily recognized by people in the ancient Near East. Uh, and we have to take into account that the Hebrews were an ancient Near Eastern people. They were an ancient Near Eastern audience. The idiom. So the Lilith, uh, you know, as I said, it, it, right there in the in the biblical canon text, you know, we've got this reference to, to the uh, uh, this vampire creature. Certainly, uh, you know, if you look at the the traditions and myths associated with Lilith. That she became the the queen of demons, and that she fed on the blood of infants and children, and stole the virility of men. Um, now, this is the ancient Near Eastern context. Something that would not have been lost on the Hebrews. Um, there, there is much later uh, development in Jewish folklore. Of course, this is, you know, this is mid medieval dark age at best the, the tradition that developed uh that uh, lilith was adam's first wife of course mm -hmm. 
None of that is supported by the biblical text. None of it is supported even by the ancient Near Eastern context that the Old Testament was written in. So there's not much credence to be given to the notion of, of Lilith being Adam's first wife. However, what can be taken from the ancient Near Eastern context is that she, you know, for all intents and purposes, she was a vampire creature. Um, and the the fact that she's referenced in conjunction with these goat demons, these Sherim, uh, puts it into further context into where her allegiances lie. Um, and so the outside of the, the sort of bloodthirsty nature of the pre-flood Nephilim, you know, who were told in the apocryphal material, you know, fought entire wars against humanity and subjugated them and when they were finished consuming a lot of their resources, they they turned to fighting one another and, and humans and eating, eating flesh and drinking blood. So those traits are already really, really set in concrete uh, before the pre-flood world. And now, you know, in these passages in the Psalms and Isaiah, you've, you've got it, you've got examples of, of you know, the, the taxonomy of, of demons um, that, that's been fleshed out. So, the, yeah, the, the vampiric stuff in terms of a biblical context was interesting to me because it, it really just as other, other approaches to Scripture, like the divine counsel approach to Scripture, uh, in the same way that it, that it explicated the, the taxonomy of, of demonic creatures and angelic creatures. Um, I think that it's valuable to look at the biblical text um, through those in, in her, sort of hermeneutic lenses as well, because they, they are historically and culturally grounded. Um, so uh, th there's great value and merit um, in the well. What we're what we're doing really in biblical studies over the last five or ten years, in particular, is, is fleshing out a taxonomy of of the supernatural that we really didn't look at as nuanced uh, before. You know, I, I can think back to my own upbringing in the church. You know, everything was very black and white when it came to the, you know, the so-called unseen realm. It was, it was angels and demons. And that was that. And demons were fallen angels and angels were, you know, there were the righteous angels who remained, um, remained faithful to Yahweh. But now we know that that the taxonomy of, of that realm is much more complicated, much more complex. Um, and we're, we're, it's really kind of an exciting time to be involved in this kind of research because we're, uh, as I pointed out earlier, we know so much more about, about Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic and um, even languages like, the, like Ugaritic Phoenician are helping us to flesh out the complexity of, of that taxonomy uh, in in not just 
not just the good the good unseen but also the evil unseen yeah the, it, it's really fascinating um and and i say a lot to my audience like when i've been talking about giants and things like that i've said a lot of the mythologies that we have in each nation surrounding giants they're not just stories from nothing like the the based on something but one of the things that i wanted to ask you about vampires is like obviously we see in films about you know they use like garlic to repel them and 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 they can't they can't go out in the light and you know they use a stake through the heart to kill them i mean the stake through the heart thing i was thinking yeah that'll pretty much do it for anybody really if you're going to stake them through the heart but where where does the things like using garlic and and that they can't go out in the light what where do they come from them ideas uh well the the light issue um would seem to be an e- easy one to answer insofar as that that uh, the night has historically been associated with demonic activity uh, and so that that's a fairly clear one the other ones have to do with apotropaics these means of either keeping away or dispatching a vampire um, garlic is an interesting one insofar as that garlic has we know we know of uh, for instance the health benefits today that garlic has you know it's it's good for your circulatory system blood it's a blood cleaner uh, in a lot of ways and the ancients knew this uh, more as a a way to ward off evil spirits this this was a belief about garlic that was prevalent you know, from Egypt to Anatolia to Mesopotamia, all over the ancient East. And in fact, in other parts of the ancient world, you know, there, there were similar uh, traits uh, that were that were attached to garlic, you know, by the ancient Chinese and an entire host, host of ancient peoples. Um, but my, my suspicion as a historian is that, that that's probably how garlic became attached to and there may be something about the blood issue too, because um, as I said, we know we know garlic is a blood cleaner now, and, and blood has historically been at the heart of what vampires have taken from people. Um, now, as far as uh, you know, silver is another one. We we know we know now that silver is is an antimicrobial. Yes, the. Uh, Silver issue is an interesting one too. That's another popular um, apotreic that's been associated with vampires and their dispatchment. Um, somewhat probably owing to uh, somewhat probably owing to the, uh, the sort of Christian parameters, at least in the West, they were used in in dealing with vampires and and other kinds of evil spirits and manifestations. Uh, we we know now that silver, of course, is an antimicrobial, um, and what we know by science, a lot of older people, older cultures, so may have known by experience. Um, the um, it, it's part of the reason that uh, that we call we continue to call silverware silverware today, even if it's not made of silver. Um, but it it was used because people figured out that uh, you know 
used continuously. So yeah, the the silver issue is is an interesting one, and in, in so far as that you know, like I said, we continue to use silverware today, and the reason it's called silverware is because people made it with a higher content of silver in the past because they knew by experience uh, that it was good, you know, in terms of your health. So I, I suspect that a lot is a lot of those apotropaic qualities are still at play um, in, in the various stories of, of using silver to dispatch vampires. Um, and as you point out, the, the stake of the heart, the actual impilation of, of someone is going to solve solve the, the issue, uh, dead or undead, as the case would be. Um, but, you, you know, so much of this, along with all of the, the cinematic legacy of the vampire, the literary vampire, um, we really have to strip the, the, the cinematic and the literary components from the vampire to truly understand the vampire. Because at its heart, it is a demonic creature. Um, I teach uh, in one of the programs that I teach, preternatural morphology. Um, I, I put it in the class of these preternatural demonic entities because it seems to have both supernatural and natural characteristics. Um, as do so many of the other so-called cousins of, of um, the vampire. For instance, the werewolf. Uh, and a lot of a lot of times, particularly in the Slavic uh, countries in, in Eastern Europe, the vampire and the werewolf are either seen together, or they're seen words that are used for vampire or werewolf are used interchangeably. Uh, particularly as you get into the Balkans. Um, but uh, yeah, the, whatever, whichever one of these we're talking about, the vampire, the werewolf, or any of the other other creatures, preternatural creatures. So the werewolf is an interesting, another interesting character um, in world mythology that would seem to have demonic roots, pre-flood roots as well. Um, and a lot of this may owe to the fact that in apocryphal texts, which I think are, are good theological commentary, um, because they're referenced in the canonical works, they're good theological commentary on the Bible itself. Um, but we're told in, in Enoch, for instance, you know, about the, the sort of manipulation of the animal genome that the Watchers uh, perpetrated in the pre-flood world. Um, and this would seem to set the precedent for all kinds of, of chimerical creatures, including the werewolf, um, because you've got a, a, a man, components of a human, uh, and a wolf. Uh, in this creature and the the an, antique conceptualization of this um, was pretty prolific um, there are all kinds of of theriomorphic uh, gods and demigods and creatures that existed throughout the Mediterranean and the ancient Near East for instance um, one has only to do a, a cursory survey of the beliefs and mythology of these peoples, and you'll find precedents for them. Um, the Egyptian mythology is very iconic in this respect because so many of their deities are, are half animal and half human. Um, but it, 
sort of, of tying it down to the the biblical the biblical framework, um, it would probably behoove us to look at uh, historical precedents such as the 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 story of um, uh, Lucan or Lycan, where the where we get words like lycanthropy, who was a king in Arcadia that Zeus turned into a wolf. Um, Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel is also also undergoes a kind of metamorphosis for rebelling against God. Um, and although a lot of people, a lot of scholars have suggested that this is boanthropy that uh, Nebuchadnezzar is changing into a, a, a you know some kind of herd animal. Um, it it seems to me that it's that that the context into which this transformation is set is one of a predatory wild animal. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't have the you know drawing the the connection between uh, the growth of his nails and the fact that he's a beast of the field. There's there's no to me there's no implication here that we're dealing with a, a herd animal, so to speak. Um, but uh, there are other clues in the, the biblical text as well, such as the um, the Aluka, which is another vampire-like creature that's referenced in, in the Psalms. Uh, and, well, actually, I think, actually, the, the probably the best reference that we have to it can be found in uh, Proverbs 31. And it's usually translated, the word aluka is usually translated as a, a horse leech. Um, but there is a larger, broader tradition of the aluka being a vampire-like, uh, even werewolf-like, shape-shifting creature. Um, the, uh, that, that morpheme, the L-Val-K morpheme, uh, in Hebrew is also preserved in, in the name for the Amalekites, uh, whose name literally means the blood lickers or the blood drinkers. Um, so uh, at least at least as far as the Aluka is concerned, there is there's both the werewolf and the vampire uh, a connotation that's contained in that particular word and the traditions that are associated with it. Um, and once again, just as with a werewolf, um, the the cinematic in particular, less so the literary. There's less of a literary tradition about the werewolf. There is some, uh, but not as much as you're going to find in the vampire. But there are all kinds of of werewolf movies. And just as with the vampire, we have to kind of strip the cinematic gloss away from the werewolf in order to better understand uh, an, an entity which at the end of the day, at its heart, is a demonic entity. Yeah. When you mentioned there, uh, lichens, because I've seen the film years ago, Underworld, and now that you've spoken about them, I, I, but at the time I didn't know what why they were called lichens because I knew they were werewolves. Um, but, I mean, I've spoken to 
um, guys who've done mission work in Africa. And one guy in particular, um, when I used to live in Northern Ireland, I lived in Northern Ireland for some time and I did some uh, mission work for Belfast City Mission out there. And I spoke to one guy who'd spent some time in Africa and he said he had seen witch doctors like basically transform into an animal like of some description yes. and 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 he you know he'd seen them with the faces becoming all contorted and like ripped coconuts open with the teeth these things that you'd need a machete to like hack into just tear them open so so like i mean these are people i mean and i've heard other other christians tell me of mission missionaries they know who've seen you know levitation and people changing into animals i mean it's 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 a it's a weird world but to quote sort of la marzuli the modern day church has a truncated view of the supernatural doesn't it oh absolutely um you know one good way to cure that should be talking to missionaries because when you talk to these guys they're on the front lines they there's no question in their mind. Well, first of all, because they're they're Christians, they believe. But second of all, their experience uh, gives them all the proof that they need. They deal with this stuff all the time. Um, yeah, I, I, same for me. You know, the missionaries that I've talked to talk about and it, talk about shape shifting and and demonic manifestations. It, it's that they deal with that stuff constantly. And so, um, you know, it's interesting that you bring up uh, the, uh, the shaman or the witch doctor in, in Africa, because so many of, particularly the werewolf war, so much of this is ensconced in witchcraft. In other words, there's something, there's some sort of spellcraft or, uh, or salve, you know, or potion or something that's at work in the transformation to a lesser extent, the same kind of thing can be attributed to certain vampire cases. So that, that covenantal act with a demon uh, is present in, in virtually all, all of these, but in, in terms of a written tradition and an oral tradition, the association of these things with witchcrafts uh, is also near, near perennial. What one of the things I've often said to Christians who sort of roll their eyes when we t- talk about things like this is that we in the Western world, obviously over here and and where you are in the states, we've been very blessed with the gospel, so we've been protected from a lot of this. And like you said, when you but when you speak to people who's been to Africa, I mean, I've heard stories of people um, going out to South America as well, and weird stuff happening out there, and like. You know, going into these these charismatic churches and pulpits floating and all kinds of stuff, but because, I mean, we don't generally experience that sort of stuff on a daily basis. I mean, I, I'm of the Reformed tradition, and within them circles, you tend to get people who they've gone sort of because of the charismatic movement, they've reacted to that and gone like the complete opposite direction. But I mean, I've had uh, more of a mixed upbringing regarding the church anyway. I mean, and I've had one family member in particular uh, before. I I think they was on the road to becoming a Christian. They've been going to like prayer meetings and Bible studies at people's houses. I mean, and this person in my family, 
there was at a prayer meeting one night and they, they basically fell off a chair backwards, like almost like pushed by by nothing and they came up off the floor. And certainly. You know what I mean? So the these these things are, are obviously real and happening. And this is this is one of the reasons why I want to do this podcast to sort of, you know, get guys like you on who've looked into these things and to say, listen, you know, these vampires, these werewolves, and you know, they're based on sort of reality that, you know, there is this spiritual world that as an influence and as obviously people get further away from God, the likelihood that we're going to see it in the Western world is going to become more, you know, common. I mean, the area of England I'm from um, is in the Northwest of England, the County of Lancashire and the East of the County. Um, when oh I was in goodness, the, the, the tradition of the Lancashire witches right there in your backyard. That's exactly what I was just going to say. We had when I was in the Cubs and Scouts, our one of our little badges had the like one of the witches on, and Pendle Hill, uh, in uh, in Lancashire, that's like an, an area that's not notorious for witches. Um, and I know that's becoming more and more common now, but obviously, mm-hmm. we're, I mean, we're not talking about people flying around on brooms, but I know that people, you know, the casting spells, and you talked about these shamans and witch doctors and spell casting, and these these things are real. Just just quickly before we wrap this up, I wanted to just quickly ask you about the basis for zombies. Obviously, there's all kinds of zombie films, and and a lot of them I would have the word dead in them. You know, like the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Land of the Dead. What's 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 a sort of brief origin of a zombie and why is it always something related to the dead? Yeah, well, they're called by different names in different places. Um, even some of the, the vampires in Eastern Europe, uh, you know, might qualify as a kind of zombie uh, or reanimate or revenant of some kind that you have the ghoul and, uh, uh, and Arabian folklore, which is a similar type of creature, um, you're certainly going to run into variations on a theme like like the uh, the Haitian zombie of, of voodoo um, is is probably a, a more recent example that people would be familiar with. But that yeah, essentially it's 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 either the reanimating of a dead dead corpse, um, or as in the case of the the Haitian zombie. Uh, the the Afro Caribbean zombie, um, making it appear as if you you reanimated the dead uh, for them to serve you, but the zombie, like a lot of like the vampire and the werewolf, I think you could trace back to the the pre flood world. Cannibalism is typically something that's associated with zombies as well, the, the eating of flesh. And as we've already you know talked about, uh, this was something that the Nephilim actually took part in in the pre flood world. Uh, and it, as their spirits became demons, um, I think uh, once again you can demonstrate the connective tissue between those behaviors and these kinds of preternatural creatures that emerge in world mythology and world culture. Um, and there are passages in the Bible that sort of hint at this. Um, I'm n- not hitting on the the particular chapter, but there's there's a passage in Zechariah. Um, that that references something that that could be construed 
This is a zombie. And then you got some zombie imagery in the book of Revelation too, like with the things coming out of the abyss. And um, you know, that may all be all be all be part of that. Uh it, in my mind, it has just yet to be, if you'll pardon the pun, fleshed out. Uh, but you can see a similar kind of logic at play here in terms of the traits and the characteristics and behaviors associated with zombies and those that were personified and embodied in pre-flood Nephilim. It's interesting you mentioned Haitians there because I spent a couple of weeks in Dominican Republic about, I think, in 2004, and we actually went out to a village which was a Haitian village because the Haitians uh, come over into Dominican and they work in the cane fields. And I went, we went to this village and they brought some children out that was sort of dressed up almost like chickens and stuff. But they did, obviously mm -hmm. you mentioned voodoo and they did this dance and they went into a, like a trance. And I was looking at these kids and I was thinking I could sense something there, you know, some like evil presence. And they, they, these children were just completely staring through you and they were chanting. It was, it was unnerving. Um, and I've I've told that to a few people, and when you tell them, oh, they were dressed like chickens, they laugh. I mean, I don't I don't know why they were dressed like chickens, but that's how they dressed them up. But there was definitely an evil presence there, and I know obviously they're heavily into voodoo, like you mentioned. Um, just just before we go, uh, Judd, could you sort of uh, let everyone know where they can, you know, you mentioned obviously you've run a number of courses and everything, where they can look at your website and all that, and where they can listen to you and get your books and everything? Certainly. Uh, the easiest way is to go to burtonbeyond.net. Um, and there's also a page for the Institute of Biblical Anthropology on that side. And people can check out the, the course information I offer six programs. Um, and really the most popular one right now is, is the topic that we've covered in this show tonight. The, uh, the preternatural morphology one. Or Monsters 101, as, as Derek Gilbert likes to say. Um, that one is really popular, and it deals with in more detail with what we've been talking about. And if people are interested in books, uh, they can get, you know, they can link up with my bookstore uh, on the website. Well, thanks for your time tonight, Judd. It has been fascinating. And like I said, uh, guys who listen to this show, this podcast, we do touch on topics that you may find bizarre but they have some basis and, and hopefully Dr. Burton has sort of enlightened you tonight. Cause that was my intention um, on bringing uh, Judd on because I know he, he is the go-to guy regarding these types of topics. So thank you again, Judd. Um, be back next week, guys, with a new guest. Um, thank you for listening. All my regular listeners who keep coming back. Thank you very much. And welcome to any new listeners. I'm Paul and this is Beyond the Paradigm. Am I crazy? We don't use that word in here. <laughs>